Hey, it's Pastor Sam. I want to thank you for tuning into this week's sermon, which is from our current sermon series called Our Aim, as we look at the mission of Sacred City Church, which is to make disciples, plant churches, and renew the city. You can find more information about Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois at scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 28, 1 through 20. First day of the week, and behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it, snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Um. Are you guys doing all right? It's kind of like, I just feel like it's the vibe in here. Just like, are, are we doing okay? Okay. All right. Well, I'm excited. I don't know if you're excited. I can't tell. I'm excited to be back. Uh, I have not been in the pulpit for six weeks. It's been a refreshing time for me. Uh, it's, it's, and, and actually this time I've realized uh, a way for me stepping back from the, the weekly pulpit duties uh, is actually pretty necessary for the health and growth of our church. I, I think it's necessary for the growth of our church and it gives us an opportunity uh, to raise up men like Jesse Corns and Trent Randall who get behind the pulpit and learn how to handle the word of God rightly for the edification of, of the, the church body, but also gives me an opportunity to give my focus to other areas of the church. Instead of doing the work of the church, that, that the normal grind, I get to be up on the bank to think through some of the big pieces of where God has us going, and I get to develop myself and, and work on the church. Very 
helpful uh, if we want to go somewhere. And actually, this sermon series that we're kicking off today is a product of that time away, the product, that, the time that I've had to reflect on where we are as a church and where I believe God is moving us. And this series is called Our Aim. We are taking time to go back to the basics, going back to refocus on the mission of Sacred City Church. Now, I need to be clear here that we are not generating a new mission. We're not changing things up. We're not headed in a new direction. We're not rebranding. There's no pivot. We are doubling down on the mission that God has given us from the beginning to make disciples, plant churches, and renew the city. Now, you might wonder if there's no change to our mission, if all of the founding documents are still the same as they were five and a half years ago, why take the time to talk about this? Well, it's because there's a thing called mission drift. We drift away from the mission. What we set out to do, our aim just gradually drifts from that center target. Mission drift is a subtle and constant organizational entropy that if left unchecked will render an organization useless. Now, this mission drift can be caused by a myriad of things. There's, there's these little crises that pop up that can distract us from the work that we're, we're called to do. It can be bad leadership. I can fail to lead this church in the right direction. Our leadership can drop the ball. It can be because of fatigue of the people, of just, we're, we're missing the, the grand vision of the ocean and this whole building the, the boat piece by piece seems kind of mundane. We're, we're, we're losing the thrill of the adventure. It could be because of failure. We try something, it doesn't work, it fails, we get discouraged. And even times, mission drift can be caused by success or, or we get successful at the wrong things or we get successful and we let up off the gas. Mission drift can be caused by anything that leads us to turn in on ourselves, to get more concerned about the community, get more concerned with our own comfort, with our own self-preoccupation, that it takes us away from what we're aiming at. And what happens is what was once in the center of our sights, what was dialed in down the scope on that target, now is in the periphery. Now this can happen to any organization. It can happen to businesses, nonprofits. I mean, we're seeing this happen a lot all over the place, but churches are particularly susceptible to mission drift. Now, I think there are two reasons why this is the case. Number one, the church, I'm talking church universal, but also our mission as a church is a really big mission. See, our mission isn't just to show up and put on a nice Sunday gathering and pat people on the back and say, we love you and we'll see you next week. We really have this huge vision for what God, we're hoping God will do here in us and through us. It's a big vision, big mission. And the second piece of why we're very susceptible is because there's an, there is an enemy. There is a saboteur out there that as we lay the bricks, he wants to come and knock them down. And so to stay faithful to the mission, or in other words, to stay faithful to Jesus, we need a ruthless commitment to our mission. It's got to be in front of our face all of the time. We have to keep this mission dialed in. We've got to keep the aim on target. And that's really what this series is about. It's, it's we're refocusing the aim. I don't know any hunters out there dialing in your scope. That's what this is. We're, we're refocusing the mission of Sacred City Church. 
Now, our mission at Sacred City Church is not some arbitrary catchphrase that we just toss around. We don't, don't just slap it up on the wall in the lobby because we think it sounds trendy, sounds hip. Like, oh yeah, people get behind this for sure. That's not it. The mission of Sacred City Church is of utmost importance because it is rooted in the mission of God, in, in the Missio Dei. See, I, I don't know if you realize this, but God has a mission. God isn't just chilling. He's got an agenda. And this mission existed long before our church, or in fact, any church existed. God doesn't just collect people, like, oh, I'm gonna adopt you into my family, right? Now I'm your heavenly father, you're my beloved child, I brought you into the family of God, and say, well, now, now I gotta find a way to keep them busy. He doesn't collect and say, oh, well, here, now twiddle your thumbs by doing this mission. The mission of God is not an afterthought. The mission of God is central to the heart of God because the mission of God is concerned with God's own glory. This concern for God's own glory, this mission that God has is what caused the existence of the church. Without the mission of God, there is no church. I've got a quote here from Christopher Wright who wrote a book called The Mission of God. He says this, it is not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world as that God has a church for his mission in the world. See, the difference here is the primacy, the center focus, the engine behind God's heart is the mission and he adopts people into his family. He brings them in and then sends them all out on that mission. Now, what is this mission? What is God aiming to do? Simply put, it is this. God's mission is to be known and worshiped rightly. To be known and worshiped rightly. In fact, this is what the entirety of the Bible is about. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, God is making himself known so that he would be worshiped rightly. And we see God making himself known. We see God disclosing himself, revealing himself in two primary ways. And the first is creation. The second is in redemption. Now we've been in the this, uh, Psalms the last several weeks and we see this motif over and over through the Psalms that, that for some reason, the psalmist just keep going back to the fact that God created the world. And because of that, God has disclosed his glory. In fact, Psalm 19 the heavens declare the glory of God, right? It is in creation that God discloses himself. He puts his glory, puts himself on display, and then God creates mankind so that he would have someone to share his glory with. Romans 1, when, when the Apostle Paul is writing, he says, what can be known about God, his invisible attributes, namely his power and his divine nature are plain to us in creation. God in creation has revealed himself to us. Now, if, if we would receive this revelation and, and base our lives on this revelation, things would go really, really well for us. Adam and Eve, they, like they started out great. Create God's glory here. I'm living in it. It's amazing. But it didn't take long for them to mess things up. See, instead of knowing God and worshiping rightly, humanity is inclined to suppress the truth, to, to, to reduce the glory of God, say, oh yeah, I, yeah, God's over here showing us his glory, but it's really not that impressive. 
There's this truth suppression that happens. And in fact, Apostle Paul in, in Romans 1, he, he really uh, keys us into this. This is really a, a, a central doctrine for the church. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It's because we sin, because sin exists, because our hearts are tainted by sin, that we suppress the truth. And he goes on in verse 21. He says, for although they knew God, so there we have the knowledge piece, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. They didn't give thanks to him as God. They didn't worship him as God, but they became futile in their thinking and foolish, their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The Apostle Paul here is pinpointing the unraveling of human society. This is what I call the humiliating exchange where we had it so good. Mankind had it so good to, to be in the presence of God. Adam and Eve, we're told, are walking with God in the, in the cool of the day. They have relationship with God. They see his glory. They've got a purpose. God has put them in the garden to tend it, to fill it, to subdue it. They, they have access to the wisdom of God, the glory of God, the truth of God, right there at their fingertips. But then they go and turn it all in. They exchange it for something counterfeit instead of wisdom. Now, folly. Instead of glory, now there's shame. Instead of truth, we have lies. Now listen to this. The absence of truth's light will always create a darkened heart. The absence of truth's light will always create a darkened heart that doesn't see God rightly, that doesn't worship him rightly. It's a darkened heart. See, when you have a darkened heart, you have disordered loves. You don't love the right things. There's an order of what you love that gets flip-flopped and scrambled in a way that is not right. And with disordered loves, you will have misguided worship. Now, the reality is you were created to worship. There's never a moment in your life where you are not worshiping. It's not a matter of if you worship, but what you worship. And if your loves are contorted, your worship is contorted. And what happens when we have misguided worship, misguided worship creates unstable and dysfunctional lives. Now, you, you've probably experienced this before. If you are worshiping your job and you lose your job or you don't get that promotion, that thing that you were holding up on a pedestal, that thing that you were chasing after, the thing that your affections were attached to, that thing lets you down and boom, you're crushed. It's because that thing was never meant to hold you up. Same thing with your kids. You love your kids? Like in, in an elevated sense above your love for God? Well, your kids go do something stupid. And guess what? You're let down. That idol, that thing that you love, that thing that you're worshiping cannot sustain the weight of your worship and it will lead to an unstable and dysfunctional life. It leaves you scrambling, you're depressed, you're anxious. All of these things that don't lead to settledness and stability are produced by our anxiety that comes from idolatry. Now, with sin infecting humanity so badly, I mean, so thoroughly, I mean, you just, you just look around the world and you see how bad sin is really just running its course. It might seem 
like this fallenness, that this sin has really thwarted God's mission. That it might seem to you like God's back on his heels, not quite sure what to do here because it really got out of control. Now, if God were to stop revealing himself, like if the only place where God revealed himself in creation, uh, if that was it, then we'd be in trouble. But, but it's in the midst of sin, in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our, our futile minds and darkened hearts that God shines his light into man. That's where God begins to make himself known through his acts of redemption. And as God's light shines forth, it illuminates our hearts and minds so that we would see him rightly and worship him as he ought to be worshiped. In this, God reveals himself to a sinner and that changes us. We see God afresh. We see God new and our affections, our loves get reordered, our affections change and we worship God rightly. And when we worship God rightly, you find stability. Why do you think it is Jesus is called the Prince of Peace? I told you that from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, that God is revealing himself. Now we see God revealing himself in Genesis 1 and 2, specifically in creation. It recalls the, the creation account. From Genesis 3 on, we start to see God revealing himself through redemption. And we see flashes of redemption in the story. We see a lot of brokenness, a lot of mess, a lot of messy people, but God continues to pursue and chip away at his mission, revealing himself, illuminating the eyes of people's hearts so that they would see him and love him and worship him rightly. But all of these things that we see in the Old Testament are merely signposts of redemption. It's it's a little appetizer to the main course of what's to come. Because the place where God most clearly reveals himself is in the person and work of his own beloved son. There's a passage in Hebrews, actually opens up the book of Hebrews. It says this, let me, let me call your attention to it. Long ago, in many times and in many ways, pointing back to the Old Testament, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in the last days he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Interesting. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So if you look at Jesus, you see God the Father, and Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now listen to this. After making purification for sins, after bringing redemption through the cross, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. See, in this moment, through through Jesus, God is disclosing himself to humanity in a way that he's never done before. You look at Jesus, you see the Father. And through Jesus' ministry, we see these these outbursts, these flashes of redemption. He comes and he heals the sick. He casts out demons, that that which is tainted by the power of evil. Jesus has an overwhelming power that pushes them out. Jesus restores order where there is chaos. Jesus preaches the arrival and the advancement of the kingdom of heaven. And as he does so, everywhere he goes, you start to see these pockets of redemption. But we can't just look at the life of Jesus. We we do look at the life of Jesus. 
But it's at the cross where we see redemption really unfold before our eyes. It's a place where the, the, the author of, of Hebrews says that Jesus makes purification for sin, where he, he took sin of the world, of all humanity, upon himself. Now, this is crazy because Jesus lived the life that you and I couldn't live, a perfect life. You want to talk about worshiping God rightly. His whole life was worship for God. Why? Because he knew his father. And it was the father's will. The heart of the father was to seek and to save the lost, to bring redemption to those who had fallen away. And so there at the cross, Jesus goes to the cross. He dies the death that sinners deserve to die. And in that moment, what happens? The sun peels back. Darkness sets in. Jesus feels the darkness of sin in in a literal sense, but also in in his heart, in the spiritual sense. He feels the darkness, the suffocation of sin as he's cut off from the Father. Now, Jesus doesn't stay that way. Jesus, Jesus, as he dies and is buried, he doesn't stay that way. There's there's a a bursting forth and glorious day. Jesus raised from the dead. Now, the reason why Jesus raised from the dead is because death and sin and the enemy could not hold him back. Darkness couldn't win. Jesus says in, in John 8, he says, he spoke to them, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The darkness cannot overcome the light of Christ. This is redemption coming in. And those who cling to Jesus in faith are redeemed by God's grace. See, the gospel message tells us that God is redeeming a people for himself. He is bringing through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he is bringing light into the darkness. He's bringing us from death into life, from unrighteousness to righteousness, from shame to glory, from guilt to freedom. Now, this is what Luther calls the great exchange. I I say like this, uh, uh, we give Jesus our yuck and Jesus gives us his best. I give him my unrighteousness, he gives me his righteousness. And in this, we are recreated in Christ Jesus. The redemptive work is so thorough that the only way to talk about yourself after you've experienced the gospel, after you've, you've come to counter the love of Jesus is that you are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Now it's in the gospel that we see the heavenly father's grace and mercy, forgiveness, his steadfast and redeeming love. And we see all of these things without compromising God's holiness, his justice, his righteousness, his integrity. And that's because sin is dealt with. He doesn't just sweep it under the rug and say, hey, I'm letting you guys off. I've dropped my standards. I'm just letting you guys off the hook. No, Jesus actually dealt with all of our brokenness, all of our sin, all of our shame. And he was condemned in the flesh. And when we believe in him, we are brought to new life. The gospel is God's power for salvation. Now, in Hebrews 1, it says two things about Jesus. That that he made, what did he say? That he made, how did he say it? 
I'm trying to find it. Purification, I was gonna say redemption. I knew that wasn't the right word. He, he made purification for our sins. And the second thing that they, is, they acknowledge is that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, the passage, I'm finally getting around to the scripture for today. Um, the passage we had read today happened smack dab in between those two things. This, this account uh, of, of it's post-crucifixion, uh, Jesus is placed in the grave, and you've got the two Marys who come to see the tomb. And as they come to the tomb, in Matthew 28, beginning passage here, they meet an angel. They, they go to find Jesus, they find an angel. He's, he's white like lightning. And he says to them, hey, I know you're looking for Jesus. He's not here. He's risen. Like he said, actually, by the way, just for the record, he said he'd be risen. It's silly for you to come here and expect him. He's risen. And then he says, it's something interesting. He says, now go tell the other disciples. So they, they see this angel. They're, they're commissioned to go and tell the rest of the disciples. And on the way to go tell the disciples, they meet the resurrected Jesus. They, they I mean, can you imagine coming face to face with a guy that was dead three days ago? The kind of awe, I mean, it says that they, they left the angel with fear and joy. But I imagine that moment you see Jesus, it's just wild. <laughs> like, how, how, do you, how do you tell people about that? But what happens after they meet Jesus face to face? What's the next thing? Look at verse nine with me. We're back in Matthew 28. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. They worshiped him. In this moment, we're seeing real time what the Apostle Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, where he says that God has made the light shine in the hearts of man to give the light of knowledge of God's glory and display it in the face of Christ. The glory of God in the face of Christ. And what's the only response that these women have? It's worship. They bow down, take his feet, and worship him. Now, look at what happens right after they do this. So they, they're on the ground, they're prostrate, they're worshiping Jesus. Look at what happens in verse 10. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. I told you, it was scary. Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. You see that? Go and tell. That, that's the second time that they've had this, this commissioning to go and tell. Go and tell. Now, when God reveals himself to someone, when, when God discloses himself, he reveals his glory to somebody, to anybody, that person is now enlisted in God's mission. Life for these women will never be the same. They now have a mission that's bigger than their own lives. Now, I, um, this is a sidebar. Uh, right now, uh, there are a lot of people that are very interested in Jordan Peterson. I, I think he's a great communicator. There's stuff that I really appreciate about what he has to say. But one of the draws of Jordan Peterson a young, uh, from, uh, that, that he has to young, uh, among young men, it's really hard to say that, um, is the sense that he's trying to generate a purpose that's bigger than just living your own best life. He's trying to, to give men a vision for a life that actually is, has meaning, that, that you're doing hard things, that there's actually a mission there. But God has, he, Jordan Peterson is just borrowing from what God's already been doing. 
God has a mission for his people, something that, that brings us into a kind of glory, a kind of significance that you cannot have if your life is cut off from God. See, what these young men in our culture are looking for is a real, eternal purpose. And it can only be found in Christ. The Apostle Peter says the same thing. In, in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, listen, um, you've been your chosen race, royal priesthood, people for God's own possession. You, um, you have been called from darkness into his marvelous light for a purpose. What's that? To proclaim God's excellencies. See, once you've experienced the grace of God, you now have a purpose. And we see the same thing that, we, that was going on with the women then carries over here to disciples, the same pattern. If you jump down to, to uh, verse 16. Now, even the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped. They worshiped him, but some doubted. Now, listen, if, if you want any sort of, if you ever doubt that you can trust the Bible, I mean, the, the Bible is very honest. If I were writing the Bible and I'm trying to present a case for like, yeah, here's how sweet the church is and all of God's people are just these dynamite, awesome human beings. It's like, no, even some of the 11 disciples that walked with Jesus, after they saw him in front, they doubted. I mean, take that for what it is. But they saw him, they worshiped him, some doubted. And Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, we see the same pattern. They see Jesus, they worship Jesus, some doubt, but worship Jesus. And Jesus gives them what's known as the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. Now, this might sound familiar, the whole go make disciples piece. Um, this is the first part of our mission of make disciples, plant churches, renew the city. We, we straight up stole it from Jesus, and I think he's okay with it. I talked to him, he's good with it. And this is a huge mission, like I was saying at the beginning. It's a huge mission, not just make disciples in this small corner of, of the Quad Cities. Not just go start some sort of commune where you can really have like some kind of a, a, a monastery and, and do that there, but go and make disciples of all nations. Or in other words, go make Jesus known everywhere. Fill your home with people who know Jesus. Mom and dad, disciple your kids. In your neighborhood, go make Jesus known in your city, in our region, and in the world, go make followers of Jesus. Now, this, this is kind of abstract at the moment. Let's, let's, let's break it down a little bit. What exactly does it mean to be a disciple? What, when we say we're gonna go make disciples, what are we shooting for? What's the aim? What is a disciple? Let me, let me just lay out three very broad traits, that huge umbrellas that a lot fits underneath. A disciple is one who knows, worships, and obeys Jesus. A disciple of Jesus is one who knows, worships, and obeys Jesus. The first trait, to follow Jesus, you have to know who Jesus is. 
See, this is something that we cannot generate in ourselves, that we are dependent upon God to reveal himself to us. It's a work of the spirit where the eyes of our heart are open and the light of Christ shines in. And it's all by grace through faith, the grace of God to show himself and the grace of God to give us faith, to cling on to the reality, the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done. And one of the first things that you do when you come to know Jesus, one of the first things that you do when the light of Christ has shone into your heart and has made you a new creation is you get baptized. You, you, you express the reality of the new creation that God has made through this public proclamation this baptism signifies new life. Now, for, for the families who are raising up kids in, in the covenant household, baptism is this generational sign and seal. We're trusting in the future faithfulness of God to bring to our children an understanding of who God is, what he has done, and why our kids should know him and love him and worship him for the whole, whole of their lives. But baptism signifies this reality that, that we are brought from, from a, a covenant of works to a covenant of grace. So we know Jesus. Now, trait number two of a disciple is that you are a worshiper of Jesus, your redeemer. Trait number one, you, you see Jesus, the light of Jesus lights you up, but then you see Jesus as your redeemer and you worship him. Worship is the highest expression of love and it is meant to be reserved only for God. It's the first commandment. No other gods before you. Your love, your worship should be designated solely for God. Now, when you see what God has done for you in Christ Jesus, this is not a hard thing to do. This isn't like twisting somebody's arm and say, oh, I gotta go sing some songs now and hear all this good news and I'm just so tired of waking up on Sunday morning. It's not that. We are filled with joy and gladness to have the good news recited over us again and again and again. And we revel in it. And it shows, like, like on Sunday mornings, this room should be buzzing with worship. And not just here, but spill out into our life. You sit down for a meal, you're, you're worshiping God who has given you all good gifts and you got a nice old T-bone in front of you. Give thanks. It's a signpost. It's an evidence of grace. An EOG. I heard that there's an MC that calls it that now, so I'm. <laughs> See, when you worship Jesus, it's not this private thing that's just between me and God. It, it's your whole life now becomes worship, a living sacrifice. Now, part of worshiping Jesus is digging in and increasing in the knowledge of God. This means to worship Jesus, you're gonna have an open Bible. You're gonna, you're gonna have to deepen your understanding or, or pursue a deeper understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done for you. Now, this is why, one of the reasons why we're pushing Porterbrook, to help you have a deeper understanding of the gospel, to grow you as a worshiper, as a, a learner. In fact, this thing that, that Paul, is one of the best prayers, I think, in the Bible, in Ephesians chapter three, where Paul is praying for the church in Ephesus, he says, um, he says, for this reason, I bow my knees for the Father, to the Father, before the Father, 
from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he might grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all of the fullness of God. See, God wants you to know him more. That you would give yourself to learning, to be a disciple. Now, in order to, to make disciples of other people, you have to first be a disciple yourself. You have to own the learner identity that God's given you to follow Jesus, to learn his ways. Now, as we talk about being a learner, um, I just want to clarify that being a disciple isn't merely a cerebral exercise, that I, I just have to fill my, my brain with a bunch of facts. To be a disciple of Jesus, to learn Jesus, he says, um, come after me. Take my yoke. There's this very experiential piece of following Jesus, of learning Jesus and his ways where it's relational. And we see this in verse 20. He closes out the Great Commission. What's he say? And behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. Jesus is Emmanuel, God, with us. To, to learn the way of Christ means to commune with Jesus. Not just, not just open up your Bible reading plan and knock out what's there, but to sit there, to meditate on his word, to let the real Jesus come through the real word of God. And in this, we get to experience our union with Christ. We get a little foretaste of what's to come in the new heavens and new earth. A, a, little, a little bit, it's, it's reminiscent of what Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden when they could walk with God in the cool of the day that relationship, that union with Jesus. So the first thing is, you know Jesus. Second thing, you worship Jesus. The third thing is obedience to Jesus. As we worship, as we learn and commune with Jesus, Jesus changes us. Jesus reforms our heart. He renovates the soul, as Dallas Willard said. The third and major trait of a disciple is obedience to Jesus. I mean, you see this here. It says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. It says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, Jesus, the one who created the world, who put on flesh and dwelt among us, has been revealing himself through the law, through the prophets, he is showing us what it looks like to conform our life to the will of God in obedience. Now, th this is this whole thing of go obey me. Go, Jesus saying, go obey me. It's preceded by the reality that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. See, to, to worship Jesus as your king means that you obey your king. This isn't white-knuckled, joyless obligation. This is the kind of obedience that expresses real love. The kind of real love that Jesus has for his father, that even though that Jesus didn't want to go to the cross, Jesus said, hey, I, I, this whole cup of wrath coming my way, not really into it. He says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He submitted to the will of God. Jesus says, if you love me, 
you obey my commandments. Worship that is devoid of obedience is false worship. It's not to worship God rightly. To worship God rightly means that obedience is there. As we walk with Jesus, we worship him, we increasingly submit to him all of life, every facet, every arena, how you raise your family, how you handle money, the sense of morality, even when you think about politics and government and and sex ethic and all of these things, it comes underneath the authority of Jesus Christ. And as I close, let me just point this out, that one of the things that is included in this is submission to Jesus's commission to go and make disciples. That's the first thing. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. All right, now here's your first command. Go and make disciples. Teach them to obey. To be a disciple of Jesus means that our life is organized in a way where Jesus's mission is central to us, that we think about it. We give ourselves to it. We constantly pray for and bless people that we're on mission to. We demonstrate loving acts of kindness. We proclaim. We we don't just do things, but we actually proclaim. We speak gospel truths to people and point to the kind and loving ruler that Jesus is. When Jesus says in Ephesians that we were created for good works, at the top of the list of good works is mission, is carrying on God's mission to make him known so that people would worship him rightly. Now, this means for us as a church, we ought to have a desire to see God's mission burst forward. I was thinking about this this week. We, we had it slated to do baptisms, and we, we're kind of in a baptismal drought here. The first thing that has to change is that our prayer life has to be infused with the mission of God. Pray that God would wake people up to the reality of his glory and his grace, and then we have to go do something about it. We've gotta go into our workplaces, into the gym, into our neighborhoods as as torchbearers with the light of Christ. And as we act in faith, God will move. We've got to desire this as a church. We've got to want it, to see God put his glory on display in this church and through this church that more would come to know the glory of Christ. Now listen, let me me catch you real quick. Let me get you, I'm gonna put you on the hook. I know that a lot of us hear this stuff about going and making disciples and and being on mission and and it feels like just another thing that we've gotta do and we feel sort of, inadequate at it, or, or maybe it's not my wheelhouse, I'm not inclined toward relationships, or I'm not extroverted, whatever sort of excuse you want to generate. Underneath all of that, if we're not going to make disciples as Jesus commands, what that reveals is that there is a breakdown in our worship. See, the center problem isn't that we're not doing it. The center problem is we're not reveling in the gospel. The central problem is that our heart is not fixed on the work of Christ in the gospel. And what we need to do in that moment is we need to repent. It's not learning more tips and tricks. It's not finding better evangelism tactics. It's not, you know, raising a Christian flag in your, that's not what you need to do. The first thing that we need to do is repent for letting our own tiny little missions trump the mission of God in our life and in our church. 
And I'm the principal of that, folks. The chief sinner is me. But there's good news. Jesus delights in redisclosing himself again and again and again. If you forgot the gospel, go back. Draw from that living water. Go back to the light. Let it, let it light you up. We need to pray that God would restore to us the joy of our salvation. My hope, my prayer, we just got back, we had a little elder candidate retreat this week and we were thinking about what kind of pastors do we wanna be? And at the top of our list is joyful pastors. We wanna be people, oh, I'm gonna lose it. We're going to be, oh my gosh. We wanna be people that are so swept up in the joy of Jesus that it's infectious, that people just can't wait to get in on this. That's what I want for this church to be. And as we ask that God restore to us the joy of our salvation, we pray that God would quicken our feet and our mouths to proclaim to go and make Jesus known wherever we go. Now, like I said, this, this mission is a huge mission. We try to do this in our power, we'll fail. 10 out of 10 times, 11 out of 10 times. Because there's an enemy. There's an enemy working. Not only is it hard work to do, even if we're, our motives are aligned and we want to do this right, and, you know, there's something working against the advancement of the kingdom of heaven. And you see this actually in verses 11 through 15 where there's this bribe scenario going on where the, the religious leaders are trying to discredit the reality of the resurrection. They're trying to, to continue to, to pump out lies. And so know that as you go out and make Jesus known, you are going to face adversity. There are going to be um, counter gospel messages preached, false gospel messages. There, there's going to be God haters who are trying to undercut what you're doing. And in this moment, we need to continue to stay resolute in the mission of God, to draw from the strength and power of the Spirit and keep fighting because. Church, Satan hates what we're about. He, Satan loves the fact that we haven't baptized anybody in a while. He loves it. He's like, I'm cool with it. But the grace of God compels us to proclaim the excellencies of his grace and to see people delivered from darkness into his marvelous light. I pray that God would stir this up in us. And as we do this, as we give ourselves to this week in and week out, day in, day out, know that the light has come into the world. Though we have an enemy, though darkness seems to be pressing in at a rate that we just can't keep up with, Jesus has come and he has brought into the world the darkness cannot overcome the light. And bit by bit, the kingdom of heaven is advancing through one act of repentance at a time. If you're here, if you call Sacred City Church your home, I believe that Jesus has a mission for you to be part of. I believe Jesus has something for you to give yourself to that's eternally significant. Will, will you step into it? Will you receive the grace of Jesus and give your life to God's mission? I hope so. I'm there with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and your kindness to us that though we were far from you, you never stop pursuing. You chase and you chase and you chase. You are loaded with steadfast love and grace and mercy. 
and you have bestowed this to us through the person and work of Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would shine your light into our hearts to see Jesus more clearly, that we would be swept up in worship for you, a kind of worship that is, is, drives us into obedience, and that we would obey you as you tell us to go and make disciples. Lord, as we come to the Lord's table this morning, we realize that this meal points to the redemption that we have in Christ Jesus, how you have disclosed yourself to us. In the body, with the bread, the blood is wine. We are reminded that you are here with us, that you are with us until the end of the age. This morning, we know that, that, that you are present and ask that you would be present with us as we consume the Lord's Supper. Would the Lord fuel us for the mission of God that's been laid before us in our own hearts, in our own lives, would we come to know you more and worship you to a greater degree and bring others into this? Would, would you fuel the mission of this church through your own body and blood? For your glory, for our joy, it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.